Ready? Yes. All right. Welcome to the Gallery Gap, a podcast that explores inequity and equity in museums, exhibitions, programming, and collections. My name's Claire Kovacs. And I'm Melissa Moore. Today, our conversation turns toward the Holocaust, art looting, and the ongoing struggle for restitution. After providing a foundation for this discussion, we will hear from Dr. Jonathan Petropoulos, professor of European history at Claremont McKenna College and a leading scholar in the field. It is appropriate that we reflect on this today because Yamashoa was this week. Translated from Hebrew, Yom HaShoah is Holocaust Remembrance Day and marks the anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, which began on April 19, 1943. This year, Yom HaShoah was observed by the State of Israel from the evening of Sunday, April 23rd, until the evening of Monday, April 24th. The observance and remembrance activities occur for an entire week in the United States. The Days of Remembrance change annually as they are based on the Hebrew calendar, which is a lunar calendar. We encourage you to visit the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum's Remembrance Day calendar for future dates. In fact, the museum's website is a good place for learning about the Holocaust and its aftermath. One particular resource that caught our attention is a video called Why We Remember. Memory is what shapes us. Memory is what teaches us. We must understand That's where our redemption is. We've included a link to the rest of this video on the webpage at WVIK. The museum, which was established by Congress, serves as a living memorial to Holocaust victims. You've been there, Claire, right? Yeah, and it was an incredibly moving, emotive, and at times overwhelming place. From the very moment you walk in, you're given an identification card with the identity of a person who lived in Europe during the Holocaust. It's meant to personalize the historical events, and the card is divided into four sections. Their biography, their experiences between the years of 1933 and 1939, and then between the wars, and finally the fate of the individual, including the circumstances in which the person lived or died. You are then packed into an elevator, a reference to the train cars that were used for transport, and then taken to the third floor to begin your journey learning about the Holocaust through the museum's historical artifacts, photographs, and film footage, as well as personal objects and eyewitness testimonies of individual survivors. This is an important museum for all of us to visit. As we mentioned, the museum was established by Congress. In 1980, Congress unanimously passed legislation that established the United States Holocaust Memorial Council, and that council is what oversees the museum. In addition, the council's responsibility is to follow a number of recommendations, which were defined at the time. And these are outlined in a four-pronged framework. First, that a living memorial be established to honor the victims and survivors of the Holocaust and to ensure that the lessons of the Holocaust will be taught in perpetuity. Second, that an educational foundation be established to stimulate and support research and teaching about the Holocaust. Third, that a committee on conscience be established to collect information on and alert the national conscience regarding reports of actual or potential outbreaks of genocide throughout the world. And fourth, that a national day of remembrance of victims of the Holocaust be established in perpetuity and held annually. These mandates have ensured that compassion not be separated from humanity, and they make certain we continually take time to reflect on the fact that tragedy occurs when we depart from empathy or even simple kindness. You know, my son Henry is reading The Boy in the Striped Pajamas in school right now. Um, In this book and the subsequent movie, 
it's it's about the horrific reality of the Holocaust, but it's told through a tale of friendship between two eight-year-old boys, one the son of the head of a Nazi concentration camp, and the other a Jewish boy who was interned at that same camp. In one breath, I can't help but feel that my son is too young to be aware of this uh, this barbarity, really, against humanity. In the other breath, though, I fully understand that this is exactly what he needs to be aware of. This is all by way of saying, I guess, that we must remember. Exactly, exactly. And while most, if not all, of our listeners are familiar with what happened during the Holocaust, it's important that we take pause and summarize the atrocities that occurred. Between 1933 and 1945, Nazi Germany and its allies pursued the state-sponsored and systemic persecution and annihilation of European Jews, as well as gypsies, people with mental and physical disabilities, Poles, homosexuals, Jehovah's Witnesses, degenerate artists, people that disagreed with them politically, and the list goes on and on. It's estimated that around 6 million Jewish people were murdered and millions of other people also suffered torture and death. And again, this is why we remember so we don't forget and repeat Every year, during the Week of Remembrance, ceremonies and activities are held throughout the United States, in communities, at state and local government offices, on military bases, at workplaces, schools, and religious institutions. There is likely an event happening near you, in fact, and we encourage you to check out a link to the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's website that lists local events. We will have that available online. In the Quad Cities, Yamashoa was held on April 23rd, and it's been observed by the Quad City community annually since 1982. It is actually believed to be the oldest continuing interfaith Yamashoa commemoration in the United States. It's sponsored by the Jewish Federation of the Quad Cities, Temple Emmanuel, the Tri-City Jewish Center, Churches United, Augustana College, and St. Ambrose University. Claire, do you want to tell the listeners maybe... um about Augustana's lecture series that brought our Gallery Gap contributor for this week to the Quad Cities? Sure thing. Augustana College's Center for the Study of Judaism and Jewish Culture presents an annual stone lectureship in Judaism, which was established in 1983 by the family and friends of Dr. and Mrs. Alex B. Stone. The lecture series began in 1984, and this year's lecturer was Jonathan Petropoulos, who gave a lecture entitled The Real and Real, which is some alliteration R-E-A-L, listeners, and R-E-E-L, The Real and Real Monuments Men, The Gurlitt Cash, and The Continuing Challenges of Nazi Looted Art. And we'll actually provide a link to that lecture on the webpage as well. And while he was in town, he kindly agreed to take some time out of his busy schedule to sit down and talk with us. Claire, last week you referred to Jonathan as the guy when it comes to the subject of Nazi looting. I believe I did. He really is. As we mentioned, Jonathan is professor of European history at Claremont McKenna College in California. He earned his Ph.D. in history from Harvard University, where he began working on Nazi art, looting, and restitution in 1983. He's written a number of books on the subject, including... Art as Politics in the Third Reich, The Faustian Bargain, The Art World in Nazi Germany, and forthcoming from Yale University Press, Artists Under Hitler, The Seduction of Power, and the Fate of Modernism in Nazi Germany. He served as an expert witness on a number of art restitution cases, including one that we will touch on in the next episode. (laughs) Adding to that, he served as research director for Art and Cultural Property on the Presidential Commission on Holocaust Assets in the United States from 1998 to 2000. We were honored to welcome him into the studio as our first on-site guest for the Gallery Gap. Um, Yeah, if everybody could just say a a quick sentence, maybe what you're 
drinking right now or something just to get a level check? I'm drinking coffee. I'm drinking tea. I'm part of the, uh, I'm a caffeine achiever here too. I have coffee. (laughs) All right. In your work, you speak about the direct connections between art plundering and the Holocaust, that taking a group's cultural property is an early step towards dehumanizing them. Can you expand a bit more on this? Nazi looted art is just not ordinary property. Yes, the artworks are oftentimes very valuable, but they're laden with all sorts of additional meaning. Um, First, we must recognize that people often live with these artworks in close proximity. They were intimate parts of individuals' lives. Um, They were objects that were often passed down from one generation to the next. And and so um, it's not like like other categories of assets. It's not real estate or stocks or gold. Um, I mean, these artworks are very personal. I mean, one of the most personal things you can do is acquire to buy an artwork. uh, And then when it's passed down from generation to generation, it, it, it has additional meaning. So for families that suffered so much in the Holocaust, you know, oftentimes these artworks are so filled with complex emotions. And and for many family members, these artworks are the only links they have back to their ancestors who were murdered by, by the Nazis. And, and so while the artworks have meaning today, they also had great meaning at the time when they were stolen by the Nazis. And before the Nazis could undertake the genocidal project, start murdering people by the millions, they, there are certain steps that were necessary, um, an indoctrination of the population, and that's one of the reasons culture is so important in the Third Reich, that it was the war that Hitler won, the propaganda war, if you will, and six years of indoctrination preceded the war and, and the, the killing. Um, but also, I think part of that indoctrination was a distancing or a dehumanization of the victims. And taking a people's cultural property is part of that uh, process, part of that project, if you will, of dehumanization. And for any of us, if you, if, we, if, if you take our cultural property, if you put us in a state of abject poverty, um, if you malnourish us, you starve us, um, you know, we, we look you know, inferior to others who are healthy and, and prosperous. I mean, if I don't have a shower for a day, I feel like, like I look terrible. Um, and can you imagine when I've been, if one's been in a ghetto for months or years and, and crammed into a room with a dozen other people and, and, and one doesn't have art and one doesn't have clean clothes, it's all part of a process of dehumanization. And, and so I think you know, it was a necessary step to to make the victims, Jews and Slavs and Sinti and Roma, seem inferior, racially inferior, by by taking their cultural property and 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 reducing them in terms of their their physical possession, and and also I think stealing art was important. Additionally, not just as a way of dehumanizing the victim, but for the perpetrators stealing art was a way that they could enrich themselves. There's so much graft and, and, and so much corruption in the Third Reich. And what I found is almost all, the, all those complicit in Nazi art plundering were able to embezzle, to, to enrich themselves. And, and, and so art plundering I think, was a way of radicalizing the perpetrators. Um, and, and it showed the perpetrators that 
persecution could be profitable. And, you know, we see constantly the the perpetrators, they're stealing, they're taking jewels and gold and money and watches from the victims. And, and of course, with the art, there was ample opportunity to siphon off artworks. And, and I, I think it was a gradual process of corruption. First, you start with theft, and then you work towards complicity in the mass murder. And so, you know, one talks about the twisted road to Auschwitz. Um, these are early junctures on that twisted road. I can't imagine how emotional this would have been and still is. I mean, yeah. the, the emotions that oftentimes surround the recovery of art are so powerful. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that. I mean, it's actually one of the things I find most gratifying about my work is to see the emotional response when individuals are successful in recovering works. And I remember Maria Altman, after she had the decision to recover the the Klimt paintings and, you know, tears in her eyes and... Um, you know, and, and when you see that emotional reaction, you know, a hug from Maria Altman is something I'll never forget because I helped w- with right. the recovery of the Klim paintings. And, uh, yeah, you realize it's not, it's, yeah, it's, it's these are, you know, oftentimes the, the families, the victims and the heirs are compelled or they need to sell the works. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's oftentimes difficult for them. You know, they're really torn. But, you know, especially when, when you're dealing with such valuable artworks, if there's multiple heirs, the math just doesn't permit one individual to keep an artwork or it doesn't make sense. You know, with a Pissarro painting, a woman in Zurich, got, she, I went to her apartment and she said, look at this apartment. It's nice, but can I have a $3 million painting in this apartment? It just doesn't make sense. So they, they do end up partying with the works in many cases, but that doesn't diminish the emotional, you know, connection or the, you know, the emotional value of, of, of recovering the work. And they're parting with it on their terms instead of parting with it on someone else's yes, terms, which absolutely. I think is, is important yeah. too. Yeah. So. Well, and that kind of, so that kind of leads into the next question. Jonathan, as we've mentioned, the Gallery Gap launched in March in honor of Women's History Month, in which we amplify the voices of women in our museum's collections, exhibitions, and programming. We can't help but think we should do the same thing in regard to what is traditionally known as the Monuments Men. Could you share a bit about some of the women involved in the Monuments, the Fine Arts, and Archives program in the U.S. or or other similar groups? I mean, while the phrase Monuments Men is catchy and there's alliteration, and I guess I can understand George Clooney wanted to make a movie like this. My sense was he wanted this to be a kind of buddy picture, too, and uh, he actually went off to Europe to make the film with a group of friends, Matt Damon and John Goodman and people he liked, and it was kind of a way to have a European trip with his friends and and make a movie at the same time. Um, It's not historically accurate and it's not as sensitive. And, you know, and George Clooney's defense, I mean, his politics are very progressive and he's a smart, good guy and 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 uh, he's on the right side of, of, of history and, and, you know, I, I admire him very much. But, you know, we need to recognize the role played by women, in, especially in terms of the safeguarding of artworks at war's end, the the restitution process as well. And, you know, there were a number of women who played crucial roles uh, in the restitution. And, you know, in France, there was the resistance hero, Rose Vallon, who had, 
insinuated herself in the Nazi art plundering headquarters in the Jeu de Palme Museum, the headquarters of the ERR, and she stayed there at great danger, a great risk to herself. Throughout the war, she had an extraordinary memory. She would uh, take mental notes of the artworks that were passing through the Jeu de Palme, go home at night, write the notes, uh, and also keep a record of other events that were transpiring there, the, the Nazis who were absconding with works and and uh, and uh, you know other uh, elements of this history, and her her notes uh, were were incredibly um, important for the restitution process. She went on to become the most important restitution official in France. She was a monuments officer. She was actually technically uh, a member of the American Army for a short period around the Nuremberg trials that they enlisted her so that she could have a role at the Nuremberg trials, and she went on to this very important career in the post-war period as the French recovered around 60,000 art objects from the Americans, and she you know, helped oversee the, the restitution of those works, imperfect restitution, but she still did her utmost and was very highly respected and went, won all sorts of special medals from the French government, from the American government, highly decorated, and she's now very famous in France. There's even a comic book or a graphic novel about Rose Vallon that, that's been done. And so, you know, the French school children, she's really quite well known. You know, they, in the movie, they make her seem more like a love interest of the Matt Damon character, the James Rorimer Museum. And, um, and it's just, you know... She was a lot more than that. And in America, uh, we had Ardelia Hall in the State Department, and she was the counterpart to Rose Vallant in that she stuck with the restitution work through the 50s and early 60s, and she was a, a towering figure in the restitution community, uh, community uh, Ardelia Hall, and the most important record group for restitution in the National Archives in College Park is the Ardelia Hall collection, her papers, her records. And then there was Edith Stanton, who became a curator at the Met. She she was a monuments officer. Uh, even some of the, the German staff who worked at the central collecting point in Munich and helped with the art historical research, the identification and cataloging, uh, a lot of women there, including Erika Hanfstangel. Um, she was rather more problematic because she had been basically a Nazi art looter. She had been in northern Italy, the Alto Adige, the Dolomites, and the Germans had agreed to hand over much of this territory to the Italians, but in the process they wanted to catalog and, frankly, remove all the German or Germanic cultural artifacts. And in the process, they took some Jewish-owned property there, too. And she managed to sort of whitewash that history. Um, It was kind of a gray zone of in terms of plundering, but it was plundering, and she worked for the for the Americans at the Central Collecting Point. Um, but there were a lot of women. You know, if you look back at in terms of women's history um, before World War One, women had a limited number of professions they could pursue. You know, it had grown through the 19th century. You know, Florence Nightingale had helped open up the nursing profession, and women were now increasingly teachers, and they were doing clerical work and some retail work. Um, but it's after World War One where we see 
much greater emancipata- emancipation and progress that women get the right, the right right to vote in 1919 in Germany and France and Great Britain and the United States and so with you know some political rights come increased professional opportunities and and we see that in the field of art history in the museum world in the art trade um, in the 20s and 30s women are still underrepresented to a significant extent but these women like Rose Vallon, Edith Standen, Ardelia Hall, even Erica Hamstengel, as problematic as the latter is, they were pioneers in terms of women in the art world. And you know, now I'm not sure what the the ratios, the gender balance is, but it's 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 closer to parity now. Um, and so these women were really path breaking, and and their contribution to restitution work. Um, I mean, I think it's important in terms of women's emergence in the art world, meaning museum and gallery world, because they showed themselves so capable, so reliable, um, such great researchers. Um, I think they really impressed their male colleagues, and, and they helped in terms of the women's movement that progressed even further in the, in the 50s and 60s. We are so grateful to have had Jonathan in the studio to share his wisdom on these important topics. There's so much more to explore here. A big thanks to Jonathan for visiting our community and taking the time to meet with us for the Gallery Gap. So this is not the end. It is merely the beginning. Be sure to join... uh, The middle. Maybe a pause. (laughs) We, We take pause. Yes. Be sure to join us next week as we continue our conversation with Dr. Jonathan Petropoulos. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play, or you can also listen to the episodes on WVIK's website. There's an email on the website in case you'd like to contact us, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook. And as always, thank you to the Augustana Teaching Museum of Art, the Figgy Art Museum, and WVIK for your continued support of this project. A special thanks to our production team, Lacey Scarmana and Alfredo Manteca. And this podcast would still just be a mere idea if it wasn't for the generous sponsorship of Paterson Pate's Design. Thank you so much for making this program possible. And last but not least, thank you to our listeners. And we'll talk to you next week. Music